five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. Today, we're featuring a Future in Space Operation teleconference with Steve Clark from NASA headquarters, where he is the Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration in NASA's Science Mission Directorate. Today, Steve will speak about NASA's Exploration Campaign Overview, providing an update on the program and where it's headed. The teleconference was held on April 17th, after the Trump administration had mandated that NASA put Americans on the moon within five years. Listen in. Okay, Harley, thank you, and, and thank you for the invitation to talk uh, with this group. Uh, I, I recognize some of the names that identified themselves. So uh, um, today I'm going to give you a, a summary of the exploration campaign, albeit some of these charts are now under review, as you can imagine, with the vice president's charge to NASA at the Space Council meeting recently to accelerate the human return landing to 2024. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about that um, in here. So with that, uh, so I can leave time for questions, I'm going to go to slide two. Um, slide two is uh, a summary of the Three out of the four space policy directives, um, SPD-4, of course, establishes the Space Force. Um, so I didn't put that on here due to uh, the, the lack of applicability to what I'm talking about here. But certainly SPD-1 was the, the first space policy directive that came out that really jump-started our uh, what I'll call exploration campaign. And it's really to lead that innovative and sustainable program of exploration uh, with commercial and international partners. And we're going to start with the moon, but we're certainly have our eye towards Mars and even beyond that. Um, so with SPD-1, we're, we, uh, we NASA have the charge to, uh, develop this plan for exploration that I'll talk about. And certainly SPD-2 comes into play as well because we're looking at different kinds of ways to, to help us, um, do this in a more cost effective and streamlined fashion. And, particular streamlining regulations on the commercial use of space is key to this as well. I won't talk about the regulations in this. Um, I'm really going to give you an overview of how NASA is working together within its mission directorates to achieve the science objectives, um, technology development objectives, and, and certainly the human exploration objectives. So with that, I'm going to move to slide three, and it's titled Path to the Lunar Surface. And this is one that will be updated based on what I was talking about, the acceleration of the human return mission uh, to the moon on 2024. But um, we call this the swoosh chart. Um, you'll see the top swoosh is in green. You, those are, these are all the orbital elements of the exploration campaign. We have the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in orbit around the moon now. It's coming up on its 10-year anniversary, actually, next in June. And we've got the Artemis spacecraft, uh, which started out as a heliophysics science mission, but was repurposed um, to do uh, more uh, lunar uh, research, uh, but also using the heliophysics instruments on board 
to better characterize the the solar wind that is impacting the moon at all times. Um, and then we've got the Orion spacecraft. Certainly, we'll we'll be doing a test flight on EM1, and um, that is to occur uh, towards the end of 2020. And we're going to have the first element of the gateway, uh, which is the power and propulsion element, um, and that is planned for launch in 22. And then we'll be doing EM2, which is right now planned to be uh, uh, basically a trip around the moon. Um, and in the meantime, we continue to put together the gateway um, platform in cislunar space. Um, the green, the, excuse me, the, the middle swoosh you can see is ISS because we are going to continue with ISS. Um, we are looking to turn that over to a commercial entity to operate so that we will continue to um, have research capabilities in low lunar orbit, or excuse me, low Earth orbit, um, because it has been a valuable platform to do particularly Earth science research. Uh, but we have done some astrophysics research as well from there, and certainly the biological research. Um, so we'd like to continue doing that. Um, but then you'll look on the lunar surface. And so we start with the small commercial landers, which I'll certainly talk about the commercial lunar payload services here in a little bit, um, where we want to continue to evolve and have enhanced science and exploration capability. What does that mean? Well, we want to include mobility. We want rovers uh, to do uh, science research with instruments on board. And uh, this could lead certainly to more um, ISRU capability as well. And then you'll see in the large blue um, oval, the lunar lander descent module demo and lunar lander system test. That's going to change. Um, certainly it's going to be moved to the left. And the plan of how we're going to go about returning humans to the moon, which is the small oval on the far right, which the humans on surface, um, we will be updating this or even creating something new to show the accelerated um, return of humans to 2024. Now, I will point out in the upper right Mars because, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, we have our eyes on the first human ex uh, mission to Mars. Um, so we're going to utilize the moon and the gateway uh, to test out technologies that will feed forward to our first human landing on the moon, or excuse me, Mars as well. So um, that's why we've got that in the upper right corner, because we, we do want to try to feed forward as much as we can uh, to and develop systems that can be used not just on the moon, uh, but on Mars and, and beyond. So the next slide, slide four. Um, this is just a notional configuration of gateway. This is not a um, final configuration by any means. We're, we're still continuing to work through that. The main purpose of this slide, though, is to kind of focus on a few things. Far left is the power propulsion element um, where the big solar arrays are. Um, you'll see communications relay mentioned. Um, there is comm and data relay uh, capabilities associated with that power propulsion element. Um, from a science perspective, we'll be able to utilize that capability for science missions that are either on the lunar surface or um, – in low lunar orbit, um, or even in different orbits, but having the, the PPE, as we call the power propulsion element, in a cis-lunar, near-rectilinear halo orbit, we'll be able to utilize that communications and data relay capability. Um, 
certainly we're looking at um, potential external science instruments on Gateway, and we've been talking with our uh, Human Exploration and Operations Mr. Mission Directorate uh, colleagues about that. We'll continue to work with them to evolve the interface requirements for those type of instruments. And um, we could potentially use Gateway as, as a um, sample return uh, node for lunar samples, um, certainly with crews bringing samples up and then transferring to Gateway for the, for the ride home. Uh, but we may we may also look at this from a robotic uh, sample return aspect as well. Um, so I'm not going to go into much more detail really on here because the, you know uh, time limiting. But uh, we're excited about having a unique platform in cislunar space from a science perspective. Moving on to slide five, um, the Lunar Discovery and Exploration Program is a is a new program that was officially started at the beginning of FY19. This is the program under my office. I'm responsible for this. Um, and really the key components are the commercial lunar payload services, as I mentioned, um, development of those instruments that fly on the CLIPS landers. Um, we also have the development and advancement of lunar instrumentation, which is a separate instrument development line. Um, the instruments we fly on CLIPS um, certainly are like, and I'll show you in a slide here shortly, uh, the initial instruments that we've selected to be candidates to fly are near ready or, or ready to fly. The DALI instruments, as I recall, as, as it's listed here, those are instruments that are really uh, are, are, are farther up the development stream. Um, and what we want to do is bring them to a, a TRL-6 uh, using this instrument development call. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Mission Operations uh, is under LDIP. Uh, we look for lunar small sat capability as well, and so when the Planetary Science Division puts out their small innovative missions for planetary exploration, if lunar proposals come in, uh, we're, we're uh, coordinating with the Planetary Science Division if indeed they turn out to be rated as highly recommended or excellent, you know, we, we look at uh, if we can uh, select those and fund those because we want to do uh, lunar science utilizing small sets as well. And then we're also looking at future mobility capabilities such as the rovers I mentioned, and maybe even looking at other common data relay assets uh, other than gateway, maybe in low lunar orbit. Um, I'd like to look you know, for commercial services, if we could buy com common data relay services as opposed to developing our own assets. Uh, but certainly, uh, we'll look at all options there. Moving to slide six, I'll talk more specifically about the commercial lunar payload services. Probably most of you are aware that we announced the contract awards in November of last year to the nine companies you see listed there. Um, they are now on what we call the uh, CLIPS catalog. And the CLIPS procurement uh, is a 10-year indefinite um, delivery, indefinite quantity co uh, catalog. And so what we will do, like we have done just recently, is we will release task orders um, to these nine companies, and they will choose to whether or not they want to bid on, the on this task order and future task orders. Uh, they are not required to bid on those. 
um, and they will provide responses back to answer the questions that we have in the task orders. Um, and we released one March 8th. Uh, well, excuse me, that was the draft. Um, the 26th of March, I think it was, we released the final, um, and we are looking forward to getting responses back from the companies that chose to bid and award the first delivery services ta um, task in May. Um, we're right now looking at a cadence of one to two task orders per year. That could change depending on priorities and budgets and so forth. And we also will be looking at doing future on-ramps to bring, you know, say we want to bring on additional capability to the contract, such as larger landers that could carry heavier payloads or specifically rovers, um, then we will issue on-ramps to uh, determine if, if there may be interested companies out there that are not currently on the CLIPS contract um, that could bid, and if they meet the criteria, could be on-ramped to this catalog to join these nine. The nine companies that are already on there do not have to bid on the on-ramps because they're already on the catalog. So moving to slide seven, as I mentioned earlier, um, we put out a call to all of the NASA centers to um, have them propose back to us if they had uh, near-ready or ready-to-fly payloads that we could then uh, basically marry up to the early CLIPS delivery services missions. Um, and we did this in a unique way this time where we went to the NASA centers because we knew that we would be able to get these proposals back and from the centers and select them early. In parallel, we released, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but we released um, what we call the Lunar Surface Instrument and Technology payload call to the external world through a NASA re research announcement because we want we wanted to build a pipeline of instruments and technology development payloads that we can fly at that cadence that I mentioned of one to two per year with the CLIPS providers. What I'll say here, uh, lastly, on the list of 13 is we have a mix of science instruments. We have some technology uh, demonstration payloads, such as you'll see entry, descent, and landing. You'll see navigation um, as well. Um, so. All of these, are, it's kind of a mix, and we're looking forward to seeing um, what, what instruments the providers are saying they can take and when um, and at what cost. So, like I said, we'll be awarding that first delivery services task order in May. Moving to the next slide on eight is what I had mentioned before about the external call. Um, we have received the... Step two are final proposals, and they're going to undergoing evaluation now. And we're looking to award sometime this spring uh, those um, that are recommended for selection and we'll continue to build that pipeline of instruments and technology payloads for the CLIPS deliveries. Moving on to slide nine, um, as I mentioned, uh, we talked about on-ramping potentially on-ramping rover capability. Um, you know, we, we want to try to get a rover up there as soon as possible. And so we're looking at various ways to do that. Um, certainly the primary science objective there is to do the ground truth of the volatiles 
that we know that are there, particularly in the permanently shadowed regions, the water ice. And we want to determine the horizontal and vertical distribution of those volatiles. Um, certainly from a science standpoint, we want to investigate those areas. Um, but those also align with the human exploration objectives that if we truly find large deposits of the water ice that we think it are in those permanently shadowed regions, um, we may want to target um, our human uh, return missions to those areas if indeed it's uh, possible to extract the water ice and actually utilize it for um, water, uh, for drinking water, for water to grow, um, you know, food on, on the moon, obviously, in a controlled environment. Um, potentially break the water ice down into hydrogen and oxygen, which obviously breathing air, hydrogen being, you know, one half of the chemical rocket equation. So um, lots of potential opportunities there. Um, um, and then, so we're looking at polar investigation because, of course, that's where those permanently shadow regions are. Uh, in fact, the vice president said that we are going to go to the South Pole. Um, certainly that has been a, a primary um, target or destination from the science perspective as well, both poles actually. Um, so we'll be looking into uh, if we fly a rover to the South Pole first. Um, and, you know, we are looking at a longer, du long duration operation. So we, we want to be able to operate the rovers for months. And, and certainly in the longer term vision I have, you know, I'd like to be able to fly rovers with RTGs that um, can operate 24-7 um, for long periods on the surface of the moon. Um, there are certainly opportunities for the Space Technology Mission De Directorate to provide some contributions to the rover, and uh, we've been talking with them quite a bit. Um, and we're looking at several commercial acquisition approaches for the rover and a lander that can take, um, you know, this heavier payload to the surface of the moon. Um, moving to slide 10, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the international partnerships. Um, certainly, um, our current international partners that we have been working with over the years, not just on International Space Station, but you know through the Science Mission Directorate, for example, JAXA, ESA. Um, we've uh, been working with the Canadian Space Agency, um, you know, DLR. The, the list, there's quite a bit of list. We have quite a few newer international entities that want to also contribute to this exploration campaign. And in fact, we had a good discussion at the Space Symposium uh, with the heads of agencies and our administrator, Jim Bridenstine, on talking about the potential opportunities for international contributions to the overall exploration campaign, be it gateway, be it lunar surface, be it lunar orbit. Um, so. Those talks will continue, and uh, certainly that will evolve here over the short order. But what on this slide, um, you can see it's, it was the actual night launch of the Falcon 9 that carried the Space IL Lunar Lander Bear Sheet. Um, and uh, what you'll see in the upper right is a laser retro reflector assembly that we, NASA, provided. And we were able to work a very quick agreement uh, for them to fly uh, one of these LRAs, as we call them. And in the lower right, you can see where it's mounted to the top deck of the parachute lander. Um, 
we want to fly these laser retroreflectors on as many landers as possible. Certainly, we're going to do it on most, if not all, the CLIPS landers. And what that allows is for um, future landers uh, and even orbital assets to, if they have a laser on board, to laze from lunar orbit. And we can actually build a geolocation network on the surface of the moon. So um, now, as as we all know, the parachute landing did not go according to plan, uh, unfortunately. But we are going to attempt to laze the area that where we think the lander ended up uh, with LRO uh, next week, actually. And just in in the off chance that that LRA is uh, oriented correctly and is visible. Uh, you know, we may get a bounce back from the laser. So we'll, we're at least going to attempt that. Um, but at any rate, the, the key takeaway here is we are talking to our international partners, even some newer ones, about future missions that we can work together on to the surface um, of the moon. And uh, certainly there are several out there that are interested in building their own landers and um, rovers as well. So do a really, um, what I would say, a global effort to explore the moon, uh, I think we could take advantage of these partnerships and um, you know, we could have several assets to utilize on the surface of the moon. Uh, so we're looking forward to evolving those partnerships. So with that, uh, that was my last slide, and I will open it up to questions. Great. Steve, and, and we're keeping an eye on the time. Looks like you've got about, about a little bit more than five minutes left. Um, I'm going to ask the first question. Would folks, uh, respecting the length of time that Steve's got, um, ask quick questions, and Steve, nice and, and quick answers, if I could say. So I've got an international participation question, your, your second to last slide, so thanks very much. There is a, um, a, a look to what I hear and what I've heard presented about international participation um, that our, our valued international participants um, have come forward with candidate um, instruments uh, and so on, but relatively small-scale stuff with the exception of the service module for a riot. Um, is there discussion or do you see discussion with major contributions, say, a, uh, a, 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 hypothetically, a European or a Russian um, human lunar lander or a significant fraction thereof. That is a, um, not bits and pieces, if I could be so so explicit, but a major contribution from international partners. Um, I, think, I think really the trade space is wide open at this point. Um, I can't talk specifically about human lander um, Contributions at this point, um, because I, I really don't think the, the trade space is closed on that. Um, you know, there is a an effort by um, JAXA, ESA, and the Canadian Space Agency called Heracles, um, and I believe you know that was to be a lander, rover, and and an ascent module for humans. Um, I don't know where that is may or may not fit into the overall exploration campaign, uh, but it's too early to say right now. But certainly, like I said, all options are on the table. Okay. Other questions for Steve? Folks? Steve, this is Gary Barnhart. Hey, uh, you know, in terms of enabling uh, a range of rovers in deployed, uh, you know, 
payloads and instruments from the landers. Have you folks, uh, you know, considered the uh, possibilities of both power and ancillary services uh, distribution? Sorry, did you, you know, say the power technologies. Say that again. The you know, power and ancillary services distribution using uh, beaming technologies, both microwave and laser. I have had some discussions with our Space Technology Mission Directorate about those types of things, and we'll continue to talk about those. You know, we, we'd like to be able to take some of those, um, you know, technology demonstration payloads or even those that have matured beyond that um, and utilize the landers to take some of that uh, infrastructure to the lunar surface. Um, so, um, yes, that certainly, you know, the power beaming has been a, a topic. Um, optical comm has been a topic, you know, several of those things. Great. Thank you. Other questions? Hi, this is Steve Brody uh, from ISU. Um, Steve, the, um, I just looked quickly through the list of the CLIPS uh, instrumentation from the centers from your call. Um, as, as important as ISRU is in the long term, do you foresee anything in the, in the near term, uh, either by CLIPS or otherwise, to put some kind of demo? Do some other than the characterization of resources, something that would actually uh, do some ISRU on the moon. Well, certainly very interested in taking some kind of demo unit there, and I, I will continue to work closely with um, our space technology mission director folks that have been heavy into the ISRU part of this. Um, you know, step one is to get this this kind of commercial business jump started, and you know. Optimally, it would be great if we had several successful companies here that we could buy landing services from and fly as many of, the, of those type of things as we can. Um, you know, but um, I'd say first, you know, my guess, and, and I'm not speaking for those CLIPS providers, but, you know, I'll look at this list, and I would think they would want to take, you know, what um, what instrumentation would be, you know, most compatible with their lander systems from a power standpoint, mass standpoint, and all that. And then as they get more experienced, you know, we'll be able to ask them to take more complex um, payloads such as what you're talking about. Okay, okay good. But ISRU is certainly a, a, a top priority, yes. Good. Okay, how about one more question? Can you have one more question, Steve? Sure. Okay, guys, a quick question. And this is Ted Sweetser. If if the human landing, the first human landing is in 2024, how much do you think that will affect the, the timeline for the gateway? When will the gateway become operational if the human landing thing is going to be kind of a single-purpose, do-that-first kind of a thing? Well, we've got multiple things going on in parallel. Um, we, we would the current plan is that the gateway, at, um, and it may not be. I, I, again, we don't know what the final configuration is going to look like. If if I had to guess, we'll we'll do it, you know, incrementally in phases. But the plan is to have um, gateway in, in, at least um, with the power propulsion unit, you know, and a habitation module of some type, an airlock, so that you know for Orion to dock to it and to take a lander up, because right now the plan is to use the gateway as, you know, the platform to take humans down to the surface 
and then come back up because if you look at the long-term viability or sustainability as what's called out in SPD-1, it's to make it sustainable. You know, we, we, we'd like to use reusable landers um, and not have to do, you know, one each time like during the Apollo days. Um, so right now the plan is to have the gateway configured well enough to support that concept to have humans on the moon by 2024. You like hey, good. You have to go see where there are probably plenty of questions, but it's, it's your schedule that's determining uh, how long you can stay. Yeah, I'll take one more and then I'm, I'm going to have to drop off. Okay. Steve, one, one more quick Quick question. This is Gary Hosham from Glenn. Just uh, can you give a quick thumbnail on the status of the spectrum problem that you mentioned at the the last all hands with the administrator? Ah, uh, yeah. I've gotten a lot of uh, feedback on that. Um, I I know there have been discussions between NOAA and NASA. Um, I don't know uh, what high level discussions have occurred between the Department of Commerce and the FCC. Um, since that's, you know, really outside of my wheelhouse. But um, as you heard, the administrator is very concerned about it, and uh, it's 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 a particular issue that he is working uh, diligently on, and certainly with his, his NOAA counterparts as well. You know, um, Neil Jacobs, who is the acting NOAA administrator, I know they've had some um, discussions. So other than that, I don't know what the progress is and what, conversations have been had on it but you know as you heard me say I mean we from an earth research standpoint and from the NOAA standpoint for the microwave sounding data um, from SNPP and JPSS you know we're we're very concerned about the potential interference in the spectrum band for us to be able to continue to do um, you know earth earth research at the at the level we have been doing and getting the data to do that, and and certainly the data necessary for accurate weather forecasting. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.